Welcome to First Do No Harm with Massachusetts Citizens for Life board member and physician, Dr. Mark Rollo. This broadcast will focus on medical ethics from a Catholic perspective and address abortion, physician-assisted suicide, contraception, natural family planning, IVF, healthcare proxy, and other topics. Please be advised that this show may not be appropriate for children under 13. Hello and welcome back to First Do No Harm, a show about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective. I'm Dr. Mark Rollo. Last time you heard part one of my interview with Dr. Chris Carrera, pro-life Catholic clinician in emergency medicine and in family medicine. She explained some of the modern-day roots of physician-assisted suicide, which includes the evil of eugenics. This corrupt ideology also undergirds the anti-life mentality of contraception and abortion. All three entities, contraception, abortion, and assisted suicide, are fruits of the same anti-life tree. All are part of the culture of death. All are directed at eliminating inconvenient, unwanted life. For example, Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of the American Birth Control League in 1921 and the Birth Control Federation of America in 1939, which became Planned Parenthood in 1942, touted contraception as a way to eliminate certain minorities whom she considered human weeds. Abortion quickly followed the contraceptive mentality to eliminate unwanted life that contraception missed. Assisted suicide is a natural evolution of this unnatural process of eliminating unwanted life. Unwanted by the individual seeking to eliminate him or herself, and unwanted by the society which agrees that such suicidal individuals are better off dead. Today you will hear part two of my interview with Dr. Chris Carrera as we continue to discuss the modern-day roots of assisted suicide, which includes eugenics. This corrupt ideology, among other things previously mentioned, initially brought about forced sterilization. And I'm not talking about China, which has forced sterilization as well as forced abortion. I am talking about forced sterilization in the United States of America. You will hear Dr. Carrera refer to a Supreme Court decision from 1927, Buck v. Bell, which ordered the forced sterilization of Carrie Buck. The 8-to-1 decision declared that Carrie Buck, the, quote, feeble-minded daughter of a feeble-minded mother and herself the mother of a feeble-minded child could be forcibly sterilized 
under the 1924 Virginia Eugenical Sterilization Act. Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote in the decision, Three generations of imbeciles are enough. You will hear me laugh at this statement during the interview, not because it's funny, for it's no laughing matter, but because of its absurdity. Nevertheless, this decision established the legal authority for forcibly sterilizing more than 60,000 U.S. citizens in more than 30 states before it finally ended in the 1970s, largely due to opposition from the Catholic Church. It is noteworthy that the only dissenting vote in the Buck v. Bell decision was a Catholic. It is also noteworthy and eerily ironic that the case cited in the 1924 Virginia Eugenical Sterilization Act, which led to Buck v. Bell, was another case which came from Cambridge, Massachusetts. That 1905 case, Jacobson v. Massachusetts, mandated Cambridge minister Henning Jacobson receive a smallpox vaccination against his will during the outbreak of smallpox at that time. Sound familiar? Now, before resuming the interview with Dr. Chris Carrera, let us, as always, begin with prayer. For as stated by the U.S. Catholic bishops, only with prayer. Prayer that storms the heavens for justice and mercy. Prayer that cleanses our hearts and souls. Will the culture of death that surrounds us today be replaced by a culture of life? O God, help us discern between just laws which protect human life and the unjust laws which allow and even mandate actions that are in opposition to life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, part two of my interview with Dr. Chris Carrera. In 1927, this country instituted legalized forced sterilization, Supreme Court decision. You know, do you ever hear about this infamous, horrible Supreme Court decision, Buck versus Bell? Rarely, no. rarely. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oliver Wendell Holmes infamously penned in his decision that quote, three generations of imbeciles is enough. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, Because they mistakenly thought that so-called feeble-mindedness was a hereditary disease. And so they, it was wrong. The science was wrong. And so they instituted forced sterilizations, which went all the way up throughout the 20th century. Yeah, and was incredible. even put into the, um, the budget, into the Medicaid budget. Not, and this wasn't just Democrats. Nixon did the same thing. Mm. Um, a lot of Native Americans, a lot of immigrants were all sterilized. A lot of them 
In fact, there was a great case that somebody I came across where this man left this money to his, his daughter, but if she died without a child, it would go to his, his wife. So she went in for an appendicitis, and the, the wife went in and told them that she was feeble-minded, so they sterilized her. Mm. So she guaranteed herself that her daughter would never have offspring. That's how common it was, how easy it was to do. I guess that's sort of, so, uh, it's sort of being done. Uh, there's the whole case of Britney Spears being, being uh, made to have an IUD that's recently been in the news. That's so, right. So that, that sort of thinking has certainly not gone away. And, of course, in communist China, that's, it's still very common to have not only forced uh, sterilization but forced abortions. Yeah, to control population, but right. it's still, it's still mm-hmm. the same idea that a, a government could impose this. A lot of people went in, going in, thinking they're having their appendix out, or going, you know, and had no idea, no informed consent. Amazing. And were just sterilized. Amazing. Um, now we use long-acting reversible contraceptives. Yeah, yeah, Right, yep. we just implant devices into young women. Yeah. You know. How do you see this as kind of feeding into the current... Um, spreading of of, uh, physician-assisted suicide. Right. Well, in 1938, the Euthanasia Society of America started, and it was actually fueled by the infanticide acceptance. Because people were accepting infanticide, it was easy for them to accept euthanizing people who were, quote, suffering. And guess what? They used personal stories about putting suffering children and spouses to death. But at the same time, now in Germany... 1920, there was a book called Allowing the Destruction of Life Unworthy of Life, rather the eugenics movement. By 1933, the Nazis take over in Germany. The first thing they did was began forced sterilization, and they adopted the policies in California because it was working so well here. First it was the children, then it was the adults with physical and mental disabilities. Mm-hmm. And they were, the only reason they were forced to stop in 1941 was because of the overwhelming pressure from the Catholic Church within the country. They shut down the T4 program, but turned it into the same lethal mechanisms that they used for the Holocaust. Just to add on to that, even prior to the Nazis, the the German medical establishment was euthanizing disabled people and, and psychiatric patients. Yes, that was true. Yeah, that's how this action, that's what, what this Action T4 program was. They, they put psychiatrists in charge to go around and go through institutions and say, okay, this one, this one, this one. What did, uh, what, what did T4 stand for? T4 was the address of where the regulation was first oh, signed I see. off. It I see. had no real designation. Um, that just happened to be where where the office was, and so that was the address of the office. Sort of the office of, uh, office of Eugenics, sort of. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't quite that, but there was one in Germany, but that, it was as indescript as that. Mm. And then now here in the United States, so this is when the Euthanasia Society of America is going. It's Reverend Charles Potter, he actually came from Marlboro, Massachusetts. He mm. grew up as a strict Baptist, but he was moved to believe that man was redeemed by his own creative power. Mm. It was back to those philosophers yeah. from the Enlightenment. He became a Unitarian, but they were not radical enough for him. He began the Humanist Society of America in New York. And he really pushed for assisted suicide. Mm. But what mm. happened in Germany, 
made it so that he, he never really got it off the ground. Yeah. He dies in 62. But there's another reverend that comes up that takes his place, and that's Reverend Joseph Fletcher, who's an Episcopalian, mm. who also did move to Unitarian. He's a professor of moral theology in Cambridge, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. at the Episcopal Theological School in Cambridge. So, sadly, uh, the roots of assisted suicide are right here in the state. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, Just as an aside, I remember we, we were talking about this, that... Uh, Joseph Fletcher was sort of the father of situational ethics, and uh, when I was going to Holy Cross in the late 60s and early 70s, he was required reading, and he was the one that kind of turned uh, moral theology on its head, and instead of saying the ends the ends don't justify the means, he turned it completely around and said only the ends justify the means, which is... Basically, anything goes as long as you have a good goal. When you tell me that story, that was it was like history coming alive. You know, he wrote this book, Morals and Medicine, 1954, blockbuster bestseller. Mm-hmm. He hits every one of these issues on abortion, contraception, yeah. euthanasia, and says we need to do it. Religion's in the way. And then, uh, and then he wrote Situational Ethics in 1966. And now, here I hear from you. It was required reading yeah. for a few years. <laughs> required and reading at a Catholic college. Right. right. And that was the scary part. Well, and that turns into the, the last phase of this. So what he left Cambridge and went to the University of Virginia. There he started the Medical Center Hour, where he would be talking with medical students about these situation ethics. And he was involved with another religion professor uh, named James Childress. Now we're in the 60s here, right? Mm-hmm. In the late 60s. Yeah. 69, the Hastings Center is established. The Hastings Center is still going and has all kinds of bioethics. They, they've become a bioethics center, even though they didn't use the word because that hadn't come into use yet. But all kinds of stuff comes out of the Hastings Center. Some good, some not so good. They, they are secular, not based on a, a Catholic thinking mm-hmm. of, uh, or a natural law thinking. So by 1970, we've got this medical center hour. And then in 71, the Kennedy Institute of Bioethics is established at Georgetown, yeah. Catholic institution. Um, yeah. And that was the first use of the word bioethics. There's some wrangling that there was a guy at the University of Wisconsin who used it first, but he, he meant it towards the environment, right? Mm-hmm. When you talk about bioethics. Here it was Andre Helligers, who's an obstetrician, who opened the institute and he used the word um, you know, Institute for Bioethics. Yeah, so that was the birth of the word and the idea yeah, of bioethics. Interesting. Soon after that, we had the revelations of the Tuskegee trial. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a whole national discussion about ethics in medical research with human subjects. And we get the Belmont Report, which was written by Tom Beauchamp, who was from the Kennedy Institute. Sometimes mm. that, that the Belmont Report is referred to informally as the Kennedy Report. And he comes up with these, these three pillars, respect for person, justice, uh, non-maleficence. Mm-hmm. He, now, he's a Georgetown, right? Mm. So that's not too far from University of Virginia. We're all talking the same little area here. Yeah. He he teams up with Childress, who mm-hmm. was the guy that was with Fletcher to start this medical hour. Right. And they write a book called The Principles of Bioethics in 1979. Mm-hmm. And that book is put into the hands of medical students across the country. Yeah. And, used, and that's where we get the four pillars. Yes. You know, uh, first, do no harm, non-maleficence, and then care for the patient, which is beneficence, autonomy, yes. and justice. Right. 
those are the big buzzwords now, right? The uh, people right. being right. Well, autonomous is, and social justice yeah. and that sort of thing. Right. But where before it used to be first, do no harm, mm-hmm. maleficence is at the top. Autonomy has come to take over the other ones. This is right. thing called principle ethics because you've got these four principles and you try to adjudicate among them. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, if you have four different ones, depending on which one you stress, you can get a different outcome of what you think is right or wrong. Um, really, it should be first do no harm. That should be taking the prime thought. Autonomy, and again, because of the fact that autonomy is about me and what I decide is right and wrong, yeah. which again comes from these enlightenment philosophers, that's where we get into the mess we're at today. Right, and that's so, what you hear all the time when we go to these um, hearings on assisted suicide. You'll have people talking about autonomy. They wear badges that say, my life, my death, my choice. So it's all about an, an individual's uh, radical autonomy. That's right. Now, when you think about natural law, natural law is about, in Catholic thinking, natural law is something anybody can figure out using rational thought. Right. So Aristotle, Plato, all came up with, it with you know, based on our human nature, you know, we're all striving for happiness. There's an ultimate happiness. Uh, and the Catholic Church, of course, teaches that's the beatitude. That's where you see God face to face. That's our, that's what we were made for. That is what we're striving for. Mm-hmm. And therefore, flourishing will help whenever we do something as we, to, leading to that goal. But we're not individuals. We live in a society. When you have this radical autonomy, which John Paul II talks about this very clearly in both Veritatis Splendor and especially in Evangelium Vitae, everybody becomes an enemy of one another because I have my autonomy that I want right. and you have yours. We're now, it, it's no longer about trying to get everybody to flourish, it's we're battling over our own individual morals. It's no wonder our society is so divided. Yeah, the idea of solidarity and, is out the window. And people would say, well how, well, how can you say, you know, there's different cultures, there's different societies, how can you say that there's some, you know, natural law that abides by everybody, that's universal, that's objective, and that's understandable? How can you say that? And it, it's the analogy of, like Chesterton said, like, these are, this is, this is the walls outside that we don't go beyond. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't kill. That's sort of the, John Paul II called it, like, the, the floor. Like, the bottom you don't go below, the mm-hmm. so-called negative precepts. Those just form the boundaries. Everything in there can then be about individual societies and how do we do this as Americans versus Europeans or as Asians, you know, in whatever culture you're in. But it's those outside boundaries that the that the natural law, which is not religion-based, that's what's supposed to guide us. And that's where autonomy completely goes against, because autonomy is no longer about the society. And laws now become, oh, we've got this new thing. Oh, look, we've got this new trick that science learned. It's called artificial reproductive technologies. Mm-hmm. Oh, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm autonomous. It should be a right. We're going to pass a law that's going to force the medical community to give it to me. And that's what we saw with abortion. This is what we're seeing with assisted suicide. It's all about passing laws just to allow individuals to have their radical autonomy, not about what it is to help the society. And assisted suicide, as you and I know, and we've been trying to ring the bell, it has very negative effects 
mm. on what happens in the rest of medicine. It has nothing to do with whether you choose assisted suicide or not. It has to do with how it changes the culture of medicine. Say, okay, it's okay right. to look at somebody and say, well, you know what, that that life's not worth trying to save. That life is not worth treating. Right. Um, we need to really you know, go in go in and get the most on that patient. Go in mm-hmm. and get the DNR on that mm-hmm. patient because we really don't think that they should really be right. resuscitated. Right, so it's like... Mass General, has, Mass General has a policy that they can do a unilateral DNR. It's yeah. right in their... Uh, policy manual. Mm-hmm. So that kind of that kind of gets us into the whole idea of uh, of most or medical orders of life sustaining treatment. Because if you have this culture of death, this culture of life not worth living, uh, this culture of um, I'm the master of my own destiny, I can do what I want, and not realizing that you know what I do has effects on other people. That kind of leads us into the development of um, medical orders for life-sustaining treatment, which is kind of an offshoot of, in some ways, of physician-assisted suicide. And coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, both of these movements uh, originated, at least in this country, originated in uh, Oregon. Yes, it did. I don't know if you remember the Patient Self-Determination Act. I don't remember that. I found out an interesting fact that in 1973, the AMA adopted a patient's bill of rights to allow patients to refuse treatment, okay? Since that time, particularly, well, actually, that was 73. In 76 was the Karen Ann Quinlan case. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. sure remember the Karen Ann Quinlan case, right? Right, right. And where they wanted to stop the treatment. And they they were very open about the fact that they were Catholic because there has been Catholic language from Pope Pius XII, you know, the, his declaration on euthanasia, mm-hmm. that, that gave us, gives us the idea that if something is too burdensome, I mean, that's long been in, in the Catholic tradition. So, so in 73, there's been this Karen Ann Quinlan in 76. And then in 1990, there was this passage of what's called the Patient Self-Determination Act. Now, I knew this because I started in 93 mm-hmm. in the emergency department, mm-hmm. okay? What the Patient Self-Determination Act declared was that any federally funded institution, so that includes the hospitals and rehabs, nursing homes, all of them, that they had to inform patients that they had a right to make their health care decisions mm-hmm. and they have to make advanced directives. And they were told that they could, but it does say clearly that you could not discriminate against them if they refused to create advanced directives. So that was the push for the advanced directives. And right. if you look in the literature at the, at the time, there's a lot of writing that says the only way we're going to save money in the healthcare is if people stop, you know, because they kept talking about all this care, we spend all this money in the last year of somebody's life. Well, right. money is, you know, you die, you get sick before you die, most people. Yeah. So, like, why is that such a, that's where you spend most of the money when you get sick (laughs) when you get sick right? and that's usually in the last uh, six months of life or so right right well because people get sick and then die you know that's (laughs) yeah so that's the best place to save money right it makes no sense right (laughs) why have a health care system that um 
So, uh, so that's the case. And I remember when I started in 93, because that's pretty much when it's really starting, the policies are starting to get written and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and they're telling us, okay, this patient's getting admitted to the hospital. You have to ask them if they want to be resuscitated or not. Yeah, right? yeah, it was yeah. so odd to us. Yeah. And the, the, the resident would come down, the admitting resident would be like, you need to ask him. And I'd be, no, you're admitting him. Yeah. You need to ask him. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> you know, and eventually they decided, you know, that the admit, that was a discussion for the admitting resident. But honestly, it's not a good discussion to have. It's not a good place to have the discussion. To no, no, you get these That's people the who are not, not necessarily all that sick and and they all when they when they get admitted to the hospital they're all of a sudden asking you if you want to die which it's very scary to to uh, patients to get that kind of questioning you're there trying to comfort them and trying to 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 you know give them some hope as they because you know you're barely even in the er we we half the time we don't even make a diagnosis right we're about resuscitation and stabilization right Mm -hmm, and and mm -hmm. kind of getting an idea of 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 where they need to go Mm. So, so that really pushed this conversation business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it forced it into the healthcare system, and it's very interesting because they specifically call them advanced directives. The first thing you'll be told about a most is that it's not an advanced directive. Hmm. So it doesn't fall into that category where it says, "Well, we can't. This we you, you're not allowed to discriminate against somebody." for not wanting to sign an advanced directive. Well, most is now outside of that. Mm-hmm. So these advanced directives weren't enough. They had to then come up with most on mm-hmm. top of it, mm-hmm. something that was even more demanding. Yeah, okay? and people get get uh, pressure to sign these, and they, they're they often made to feel like it's mandatory when it's the furthest thing from mandatory. It'd be easy, wouldn't it, under this, this um, Patient Self-Determination Act to create a lawsuit and say, I'm not supposed to be forced to sign this. Mm-hmm. This concludes part two of my interview with Dr. Chris Carrera. Tune in next time when you will hear more about the potential abuses of advanced directives and especially MOLST, Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, which includes paving the way to physician-assisted suicide. The 2021 Assisted Suicide Bill is now before the Massachusetts Legislature. It is euphemistically called an act relative to end-of-life options. Call your state representative and state senator today at 617-722-2000. Don't let them weaponize advanced directives and most don't give them the bullets with which to kill you via state-sanctioned medical killing. Tell them we already have end-of-life options. They are called hospice and palliative care. They are called walking with your brother in compassionate care and welcoming the burden of his suffering and helping to alleviate his pain, tell them you want your doctor to continue to be a healer and a comforter, not a killer. Until next time, remember, we should always 
treat life with care and respect. And at the very least, we should first do no harm. First do no harm with Dr. Mark Rollo is produced at WQPH 89.3 FM, Shirley Richburg. We are very happy to share it with other networks. Thank you for tuning in to First Do No Harm. Dr. Rollo welcomes your questions and comments. You may contact him at markrollo978 at gmail.com. That's M-A-R-K-R-O-L-L-O 978 at gmail.com. Thank you, and until next week, remember, first, do no harm.